This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault, and today's episode is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. On today's episode, we are covering the 2020 edition of Hot Docs Canadian International Documentary Festival, otherwise just known as Hot Docs. Hot Docs is celebrating its 27th year of being the premier destination of documentary films, both made in Canada and international releases. Sadly, this year the festival wasn't able to have its usual routine of airing movies at its home base in the beautiful Hot Docs Ted Rogers Cinema located at Bloor and Bathurst due to COVID-19. Instead, they pivoted and offered Hot Docs at Home, a system where you could purchase credits to watch the movies in the comfort and safety of your own home, with the selection also being available to stream for free on CBC Gem, with some getting aired on TV as well. Documentary filmmaking has always been the most important movement in cinema, shining a light on issues and people that don't normally get to tell their stories. Documentaries take many shapes, from fly on the wall, to talking heads, to the documentarian being a subject on or off camera following the narrative. Documentaries can have title cards to fill viewers on unsaid details, they can be partially or fully animated, have reenactments, and feature multiple points of view. I was fortunate enough to be able to watch some of the films that were in this year's festival. I decided to stick to a theme of documentaries about music or film, my two biggest passions. I decided I didn't want to go alone on this journey either, so I brought on some guests to help me discuss the films. First up, I'm joined by Nathan Sizemore and Katie Cottrell from the I Hope You Suffer podcast to discuss Leap of Faith, William Friedkin on The Exorcist, a film that Norm Wilner from Now Magazine listed on his top 10 must-see, saying, Alexander Ophelip's idiosyncratic looks at the making of Psycho and Alien have me looking forward to his latest investigation of a horror classic and nearly half a century after its release. The Exorcist still repels and compels in equal measure with its verite cinematography, its ambiguous narrative, and its weighty Catholicism. And Friedkin is a hell of a storyteller. Later, I'll be joined by Alexander Burke, a music fan to talk about two music-related docs. We chatted about keyboard fantasies, the Beverly Glenn Copeland story, and Dark City Beneath the Beat, a movie that made BlogTO's list of buzziest films of this year's festival saying... Issa Rae helps to co-produce this film that captures the subculture of Baltimore's legendary club scene from the DJs, producers, dancers, creators, and activists who are a part of it. Somewhere between science and superstition, there is another world. The world of darkness. Expected it. I'm now joined by Nathan Sizemore and Katie Cottrell of the I Hope You Suffer podcast, a show where they tackle all sorts of horror films from the classic to the unintentionally hilarious. Thank you both for joining me today. How are you? Good. Thanks for having us. Yeah, good. Thank you. Awesome. So we are here to talk about the documentary Leap of Faith, William Friedkin on The Exorcist, directed by Alexander O. Philippe. And the synopsis of this is a lyrical and spiritual cinematic essay on The Exorcist explores the uncharted depths of William Friedkin's mind's eye, the nuances of his filmmaking process, and the mysteries of faith and fate that have shaped his life and filmography. I guess before we jump into the discussion on this movie, what was your history with The Exorcist? Uh, Nathan, we'll start with you. I say I probably saw it the first time when I was maybe like 14. Um, just per the time in the 90s of going to Blockbuster and renting horror movies as I was like kind of getting into them as a teenager. 
Um, it's a, it's definitely a movie I adore. I feel like it's a movie I can't watch all the time though, because it's intense. Like it's, it's, uh, it's not one that you just put on for, uh, like, you know, oh, there's like a comfort movie. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, I, I love it. It's, obviously one of the best horror movies ever made. Uh, and it gets that kind of title from, as like one of the scariest for a reason. Uh, I found like it's, yeah, it's great. And I found just real quick, just to jump in, like or say something, uh, this is, I think one of the best documentaries I've seen based about the exorcist as well. Interesting. Yeah. That's something I kind of want to end up discussing a little bit later, but uh, Katie, what about you? What, what is your history with the movie, the exorcist? This is actually one of my favorite movies. Uh, so when I found out we were going to watch the documentary, I was really, really excited. Um, I actually read the book before I had seen the movie. I, I don't know how old I was. I was in middle school. Uh, 100% should not have been reading this book at the age that I did. <laughs> but um, I just remember reading it, and it was, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I at the time, obviously really liked the character of Reagan um, because she was like a young girl dealing with all of these, you know, things. But I liked the book so much that I bought the book on tape because this was the 90s and we just had tapes. And I just remember listening to it over and over again. And then when I found out there was a movie, I immediately went, also rented it. And it really quickly became one of my favorites. Not only, And it's weird because I personally am not a fan of like exorcists movies like as a genre but for some reason this one just really really spoke to me um and I also I grew up in northern Virginia so I've been to DC a lot I've been to Georgetown a lot um so I think that has you know seeing all those like colonial brick uh houses and all that stuff um has like a really real sense of nostalgia for me which kind of like makes the movie when I watch it I wouldn't say that most of it's a comfort movie because, like Nathan said, there's a lot of really intense, uh, uncomfortable things that happen. Um, but that beginning, you know, when everything's happy and they're just like walking around, I love it. And then also the the theme song for this one, I think it's called Tubular Bells, is like my favorite iconic like horror movie theme song. So, yeah, to sum it up, it's one of my favorites for sure. <laughs> Well, I guess I certainly lucked out when I reached out to your show asking if you want to talk about this movie. It was a bit of a shot in the dark. I uh, I actually scroll, scrolled through your entire show's history to be like, did they ever cover The Exorcist? I'm not too sure. Is there a reason why, if the two of you love it so much, uh, why your show hasn't tackled any of The Exorcist movies? Uh, well, we would maybe do two. Uh, we Our podcast specifically <laughs> is about bad horror movies. Okay, okay. So, like, we we cover movies with titles like uh, Ice Sharks and Tsunami <laughs> and, like, uh, Clowntergeist. <laughs> um, I think we also, like, we've done a few, uh, like, Q&A episodes or things where we do get to talk about movies that we love. So that one's come up a few times. But we do try and do movies also that are, like, a little bit more on the beaten path. Um, so... I don't know. We we do try to stay away from like big name ones. Well, for me, this was actually the first time I'd seen it. I I am self-professed uh, a real chicken when it comes to horror movies. Uh, 
so I I will only like watch them during the day. Lights on. I can tell everything is good. I usually try to watch them with someone else. I don't watch them alone if possible. Uh, my wife is not interested in this, so I sat there on the laptop with my headphones on while she was nearby working. So it was all good. Uh, but this was the first time I watched it, and I wanted to make sure I watched it before I watched the documentary. I was very curious. I've also tried to make it. Uh, as being a film aficionado trying to go back and cover up some blind spots and that includes watching a lot of classic horror films i love like the old monster universal monster movies from the 30s through the 50s and stuff like that and only recently have i been kind of inching my way up to like the 60s and 70s where last halloween i watched rosemary's baby for the first time and that genuinely did creep me out but i have to say as much as i really enjoyed the exorcist and and really love like the sort of special effects and all of that sort of stuff that was going on. It didn't really scare me. It was moody and, and unsettling, but it didn't have that sort of scare factor that I was led to believe. Now, I don't know if that's because through pop culture osmosis, I've basically seen all of Reagan's antics where, you know, the spinning head, right. the puking, all that sort of stuff. I think basically the only thing I hadn't seen was the, I'll just call it the crucifixion scene. Uh, oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to keep this as PG as possible. That's probably the only one I hadn't seen. And maybe her actual dialogue. I didn't realize how vulgar this movie actually was. Yeah. Yeah. So it was interesting. There's, I, I feel like this movie specifically is, it's like, like you said, like I, I feel like if you see this as a kid, it's absolutely terrifying. And I absolutely see why when it came out, people were like, what the fuck? Like, what is, why is this movie like exist? This is horrifying and all that kind of stuff. But it is also like, you know, however, like 50 years later, it's hard to watch movies from like the sixties and seventies and be like, Oh, this is actually scary. Cause especially special effects and stuff just don't hold up from that time period. That said, I appreciate practical effects more than I do sort of like yeah, CGI yeah. stuff that really came into focus the the early 90s onward where you can tell how bad it is. Like you can tell Reagan's head spinning around isn't real, that you know there's no <laughs> life to the face other than the fact that they, they managed to get the cold breath coming out of uh, her mouth, which I really appreciate it. But like stuff like the, the bouncing bed and, and, you know, drawers opening and stuff like that. I, I thought they did a pretty good job with that of making it believable because in my mind, practical will always outweigh CGI effects and will age. Yeah, 100%. But yeah, I could definitely see, like if I had never seen this movie before and then I, I mean, this has happened to, to me personally with other movies where I've seen so many shots of the things that were really the scariest. And movies do this now in trailers to give away, like, the scariest stuff. Um, so I could definitely see why watching it now wouldn't have the same effect. Um, but that being said, I still think people should really watch it if you haven't, because there's just, it's, uh, you know, definitely different. They just do so much with the movie. It's it's just like a beautiful movie. Like the shots and all of that stuff um, are, some of it I think is really unique. Uh, Do I think, yeah, I I agree with you. It's probably not scary now, but being like a little kid, even though I knew what happened because I, you know, I read the story, but watching the movie, man, when when you're young, (laughs) it's very scary. (laughs) I I can imagine. There's a few like 
movies that were I don't even want to say we're horror, but like just general suspenseful movies as a kid where you watch that and you just kind of like nope out of that. And that's sort of maybe what caused my aversion to horror movies for the longest time. <laughs> now that we talked about like our actual history with The Exorcist, let's maybe talk a bit about this this documentary. Nathan, you mentioned off the top how this is probably the best documentary that you've seen on The Exorcist. Have you seen multiple ones before? And what would you say is the difference between this one and other ones that you've seen? So there's like a lot of like, cause obviously this is like a probably, you know, easily like a top three, probably most popular horror movie of all time. And um, there's like a lot of, a lot of like mini documentaries, full length ones, like whatever that have been made about it. Like, TV show episodes about how the filming of it was cursed and stuff like that. And what I found really fascinating about this one is that it didn't focus on the sensational aspects of the making of the movie. Um, like there's the recently shutter put out a documentary series called cursed films that the first episode, I think it was the first episode about the exorcist and it's just about, you know, exorcisms and how like there's a scene in the movie where the guy gets his head cut off by like the painted black wait maybe that's the omen (laughs) yeah i can't remember which but like i don't know they talk about just like how you know people sign on to these movies and they die or like like you don't have things happen to them and like there's obviously like a curse going on with them and like a lot of exorcist stuff focuses a lot more on like the the after or like post stuff of the movie about like the sensationalism of what it did when it went to theaters and people being like terrified and like passing out and stuff when watching it and people thinking that there were like the, the actual film had like a demon in it and all that kind of stuff. (laughs) What I found really fascinating was listening to William kind of explain, uh, like, things in the movie like specifically the sound for it i found fascinating like the music and how long it took for him to get a score for this that he felt fit properly and then some of the like juxtaposition where they play score that was made for it that he didn't think worked and how like vastly different it is from what ended up in the movie um I think the stuff with um, one of the things I saw that I can't remember ever seeing in another documentary was the audio of Linda Blair delivering the lines without like the voiceover, which I found almost creepier. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Like, yeah, I don't know. I found it was like, cause like, I get like, are we allowed to say that the documentary essentially is just literally like an hour and like 45 minutes, just basically kind of like an interview with William Friedkin? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're basically, you go from like the, you know, how he got into film to like the end of The Exorcist and like just his story of how he got this made, his, his vision of what he wanted with specific shots. You get a lot of like, really kind of fascinating insight into how like art and paintings like 
got like got this movie made in his mind. I don't know. I just found it incredibly like fascinating to listen to. You basically have covered in my mind what were the most interesting aspects of the movie. The the score's not used and sort of juxtaposing what it was supposed to sound like and what the original score actually ended up being, things like that. And then of course the comparisons of like the paintings of Caravaggio and Rembrandt and uh and, and Vermeer and all that sort of stuff and sort of seeing his idea of talking about how he likes you know, the frame to be in complete blackness, except for, you know, the one strand of light and it hits half the face. Oh, and yeah. You see, like, the one eyeball of the beggar in the subway, and you see that, like, side by side with a Caravaggio painting where it's the identical aspect of that. And you're just like, oh my God, that's absolutely insane. And, like, you listen to any other interview with directors of like that take their craft super seriously and they'll talk about how certain paintings or music inspires them and you're kind of a little uh hesitant to to really believe how much it really does but like listening to them talk and then them splicing in the footage of the movie and the actual stuff he's talking about and just seeing how one-to-one similar it is this is this is clearly someone that had a vision and followed through with it in as he lets you know very eloquently he won't let anyone tell him no right. <laughs> like i i found really striking especially when it came to like the score stuff when they showed uh 2001 a space odyssey oh like the God, opening yeah. with the different song and i was like this like it's it's how like perfect that opening song is for that or you know score is for that movie compared to like what it could have been it just is such a like juxtaposition it was weird you'll read about things where he even talks about it in here how stacy keach was originally cast to play the lead uh father Karras. And you'll read about things like, oh, so-and-so was considered, or the music was originally done by this person, they scrapped it, and you're like, oh, yeah, I wonder what that sounds like. And sometimes, depending on the fandom, you'll get like a fan edit of, this is what a trailer would look like with this person in it, or with this music on, and things like that. But it's nice to like see actual concrete, polished proof of this is what they were considering and why they scrapped it. Right. I'm actually kind of interested on kind of that point where... Katie, what did you think about the tubular bells part? And like, like what? I can't remember what he was humming. It was like a lullaby or something. It was like a, a lullaby song, um, and they played it over like her. And I was just like, "Wow, this is trash." Um, <laughs> I mean, like I said, though, that song is so iconic and it's my favorite. So for me, I literally couldn't imagine like any other song playing and. You know, I just can't even imagine. I don't remember how many songs he said he played over it, but like, it's just one of those things. He, you know, he watched the scene and he heard the song and it just clicked and he was like, this is right. And that's, you know, one of the things, the thing that I've watched a lot of documentaries, like not only the curse films that Nathan mentioned, um, I've watched a few other ones and you're totally right. They always focus on sensationalism of whatever. Or, you know, such and such people died. Um, they also, a lot of times, will focus on Friedkin's kind of, like, unconventional means in his directing. Um, but he's not normally a part of any of the other documentaries, documentaries that I've seen. So now that we're just, like, sitting here with him and he talks about it, the thing I like about this documentary so much is that it's literally 
him talking about this movie as like a piece of art because that's what it is. So, you know, from the scenes, the showing the, the paintings that influenced him that you guys were talking about was like incredible. Um, and I didn't even know any, I did not know any of this stuff. I've never learned almost any of this information that we, that we learn from this documentary in anything else. And the fact that he, you know, goes through like, we tried this, it didn't work. We tried this, but it's just like, at the end, you just really realize like how much a labor of love this movie was. And it's like, I don't know. It, it made me like appreciate what went into the movie so much more. Interesting. That's good to hear. Um, and I think, you know, you both talked about the sort of sensationalism that other documentaries focus on. And I think that those topics are sort of brought up a little bit. He talks about them, but he wholly dismisses them as being sort of extracurricular to what he's trying to say with the movie and what everyone that was involved in. Because, you know, he does talk about how it's his vision and the fights that he had with other people, but he also readily credits the people with the work that they had done and the very deserving work that they had done, especially the actors, what they were bringing, uh, Blatty being the writer and, and things like that. So it's, it's definitely Definitely interesting to sort of hear him acknowledge the sensationalism, but still be dismissive and focus on the craft as being the most important part. I I feel like one of the things that gets talked about in this too that I don't know if I'd ever heard talked about before was his like kind of unhappiness and the compromise he made with the ending. Oh yeah. I feel we can talk about that a little bit. We'll sort of dance around it, but it has to do with the title. I was I was a little surprised with how complicated he made that relationship to be, whereas even listening to him describe it, I felt like it was a pretty straightforward answer that the movie does a pretty good job explaining. Do you do either of you disagree with him, agree with him? Like what what's your situation on, on that? I I don't necessarily, I, I think I'm kind of ambivalent to either. Like, I feel like it's one of those things where regardless of what a director says, people are going to put whatever they experience as like, that's how this movie is supposed to be. It's kind of like to a lesser extent, like the idea of the, it's die hard a Christmas movie. Like <laughs> regardless of what you say, you're not going to change people's minds. So like, I feel like there's just, you know, for me, the ending is what it is. I don't think I'd ever thought any had any second thought about it. It's just how like what is in the movie. So for me, that's just I don't know. Like it didn't necessarily what he says really affect how I view the ending. I don't think. And Katie, what about you? Because you've read the book, you've listened to it, you've seen the movie, now you've seen this documentary. Does that change any of your thoughts? No, I, I actually like when he brought that up at the end. I feel like he was like almost in tears over it. Like it really upset him. And I was confused because like, I mean, I guess I've never talked about the ending of the movie, but you know, he makes it a point to say like that he wants the viewer to kind of infer the ending. And I just, yeah, exactly. Like Nathan, I just sort of took the ending for what it was. And I was like, okay. Cause like, there's a lot of horror movies that you watch it ends and you're like, I have no idea what that was like what the ending means and i think a lot of it is for personal you know inference but uh i don't know i i think the ending's fine um so i guess i 
disagree with him being upset with it. <laughs> it's interesting. It reminded me a little bit of uh, The Big Sleep, the classic film noir, where Howard Hawks, who directed it, and I can't remember who, who wrote the book. Uh, I think it was a Raymond Chandler book. At the end of it, they were like, yeah, we completely forgot about several of the plot lines. We didn't know what was going on. But the end, <laughs> you know, the audience doesn't really care because it's a good story and they're invested enough. And I kind of feel that like Friedkin and and Blatty are sort of on that same page. We're like, oh man, we completely lost what you know the the scope of the whole thing was. But as an audience member, like the both of you were saying, you know, you you just kind of accept it at face value when you understand what the message that they're trying to say, and it doesn't have to be more complicated than just what the ending is, right. So I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to spoil too much about the ending because I think that's probably the other than you know sort of comparing the the music and the the, the paintings to the movie it would probably be the biggest reason why people would want to check this out, especially if you are a fan of it. Uh, on sort of a different note, I really love the moment where he was talking about not getting the right delivery from uh, Max von Sydow during you know his climactic exorcism moment. And he doesn't know what to do. And he's telling him to give him more. And Max is, is arguing with him. And he says, I'll fly Ingmar Bergman in if I need to. And for some reason, that just like absolutely cracked me up of like this idea of you're going to bring in this, you know, probably at the time, 70, 80 year old filmmaker in who's living in Sweden just to direct one scene of his favorite actor. And <laughs> it just had me in stitches. Yeah. I, there's a thing with a lot of the movies that were made at that time that like, it's kind of interesting and also it's like it's just with the way like just by 2020 standards you're like ooh, this is kind of messed up it's just like <laughs> even the scene where he's like he couldn't get um oh i can't think of the actor's name offhand where he couldn't get him to like have the emotion he needed at uh the death at the end and he just like he's like do you trust me He's like, you know, I love you. Do you trust me? And he's like, yeah. And he just like wails and hits him in the face to get him to cry. And like, I was just like, oh boy, this kind of stuff does not fly with uh, today. At least he acknowledges that. I, um, I was going to say, there's a big thing with like a lot of the documentaries you see about the movies that are like quote unquote cursed where you're just like, oh no, the director was just kind of a dick. And that's why <laughs> all of this stuff went wrong. Right. I feel like um, I feel like my view of him uh, was a little tarnished before I watched this documentary, and um, I because he did a lot of things. Like I said, that it, he does touch on a few of them. Um, you know, some of the things that he did that was like a little unconventional, and he kind of was just like, "Yeah, I did do those things," and he acknowledges like you definitely couldn't do them today. But he's like, at the time, such and such director was doing it, such and such director, like, that's just how it was. And I'm like, you know, quote unquote, that's just how it was, isn't really like, always an excuse. But he was like, I understand you can't do that now. Um, but I don't know, I guess the fact that he sort of just kind of like owned up to that, for me, like, went a long way. <laughs> I think he's clearly insane. Like, you know, we, we, you talked about oh, him yeah. hitting actors and like him firing guns off in the set and doing it multiple times. Like, that's just pure insanity. And like you said, just because other directors were doing it, that is not a valid excuse to keep doing that. 
and then also, you know, they didn't talk about it at all in this movie, but when I was reading about sort of the, the filming, seeming like the total disregard for safety in regards to stunts oh, yeah. with both uh, Ellen Burstyn and Linda Blair suffering permanent back injuries due to wire work that was faulty uh, is, is clearly something that should not have been allowed. And, you know, you put all that together and this is, you know, a bit of a tyrannical director who doesn't know how to take no for an answer, things like that. Uh, but I guess kudos to him for being self-aware. <laughs> yeah, I mean... There's, uh, there's been things where I think there was like a couple decade long period of time where Linda Blair like refused to talk about this movie because of kind of like PTSD stuff, which especially like, I can't even imagine being like that young and then dealing with just the kind of heavy issues in this movie. And then also kind of like injuries and stuff that probably came along with it. Yeah. That's, that's something that I think is a little bit tough uh, to sort of grapple with as well. Um, but, uh, I, I really enjoyed this, this documentary. I learned a lot. I, I quite enjoyed listening to people talk about their craft and when it was a director, when it's, when it's someone who is as, uh, succinct and as good of a storyteller as Friedkin is, it made it all the more enjoyable. Cause I can't believe like, I don't know. I, I imagine they filmed this over several hours. This ended up being, you know, an hour 40 runtime. I, I wouldn't be surprised if he sat there and talked for four or five hours and they were able to edit it down, but still being able to so clearly tell all these stories one after another and remember the names of people involved and, you know, the day to day film making was quite impressive and I think really elevates this film to being one of the better, you know, behind the scene look documentaries, regardless of the genre. Yeah, it's it's great. It's a movie I if even I I think if you're not necessarily a fan of The Exorcist, I still feel like if you're a fan of just filmmaking or films in general, it's just it's worth watching because I say like a good portion of it isn't super exorcist heavy like it's about the exorcist but there's so much about his influence on like what he did with his filmmaking that like it made me want to dig deeper into kind of his filmography for movies i had not seen like, yeah, i totally agree I, with you i, I think, think it I think the only other one I specifically know I've seen is French Connection and Cruising. And so I, and they show like Sorcerer a lot in here, which I've never seen that I kind of want to see now. So I think I'm going to do like a, a deep dive now after watching this into some of his other movies. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think even if you don't like, like, even if you don't, not not specifically if you're not a fan of Exorcist, but even if you don't like horror movies at all, I definitely think it's worth watching. Because like you said, like overall, it really is just about like his process and the movie that they picked was The Exorcist. And um, it's just like, I, I think if you just like movies at all, you'll really appreciate uh, just like the deep dive. You're just like in this guy's head. It's crazy. Yeah, I would say the only caveat being... If you have not seen The Exorcist first, but you do want to watch it or are interested in watching it, I would make sure you watch that beforehand because he very deeply goes into the ending and a whole bunch of things and would completely spoil a lot of the surprises that the movie has. Yeah, yeah that's true. That's, that's definitely true. 
But if if you're if you're say someone like me who you know if it wasn't for this documentary I wouldn't have watched The Exorcist. If I saw this on you know on Netflix or whatever, and was like, yeah, I'll, I'll watch a documentary. I'm hearing good things about it. I would be 100% engrossed by everything that was happening, regardless if I had seen The Exorcist or not. Yeah, definitely. So I think the last question I want to ask is, you know, after seeing Leap of Faith, has it changed your your thoughts or perception? uh on the whole for the exorcist uh katie i'll start with you yes <laughs> i think i accidentally answered this earlier but i mean the exorcist was already one of my favorite movies just plain and simple as a movie um but now it's like it's hard to explain i mean i appreciate it a lot more because of all of the thought and intent that went for it and there's like a point in the documentary he was explaining something and he was like i don't think you would rec- you, you would like notice this unless i told you this, this, this. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you're right. And so ha- like rewatching it after having seen, you know, sometimes when we see like behind the scenes things for certain movies or whatever, it kind of spoils it. Like maybe seeing your what your favorite voice actor looks like and you're like, oh, that's not what I thought they looked like. But for me, this like elevated it because everything I liked about it to begin with, like the, the shots, the music, everything, I appreciate so much more knowing like why they happened and where they came from wow that's that's good to know uh and what about you nathan i don't think it necessarily changed my perception i think sort of along the lines of what katie said i think there were things in it that just made me i think it made me appreciate the art and like craft that went into the actual filmmaking more like a lot of the stuff, like like we said earlier, like the the influence from kind of like paintings that like they kind of show juxtaposed to the actual shots in the movie, I kind of really liked. And then it made me appreciate just the score like so much more because of how vastly different it could have been that could have possibly just like ruined the entire movie. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I I agree. I think I, I think I, I agree with Katie more so because like for me, I, I watched the movie and I sort of was appreciating what I was doing, but seeing things like a good chunk at the beginning of, of the documentary, they go over basically shot by shot the whole northern Iraq uh section of the movie, yeah. which starts it off. And seeing how it basically lays out the entire theme of the movie with almost no dialogue. And the way he was choosing his shots for that was something that that really hit me hard as far as the amount of care and craft that went into it and definitely made me want to basically rewatch The Exorcist as soon as I finished the documentary. Right. I agree. Well, I uh, I want to thank uh, both of you today for, for joining me, Nathan and Katie. Uh, what can listeners expect coming up for I Hope You Suffer and, and what's the best way to follow the show? Oh man, coming up, uh, we've been doing gnome horror movies this month. <laughs> when this drops, we'll have dropped uh, a Vern Troyer movie called Gnome Alone. <laughs> uh, so look forward to that. Spoiler: <laughs> Is the movie any good? Uh, nah, nah. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's, it's just kind of depends on what you like in horror movies. Uh, um, we. We, yeah, like we generally do kind of, I don't want to say bad movies per se. We definitely come across that are just some really, really just god awful movies. 
but uh, we try to cover stuff that like isn't a major release movie. We just kind of will like stumble across like a low budget movie or something on like Prime or Shutter or whatever, and we try to do stuff like that. Um, I think last month um, we were trying to do. Oh yeah, never mind. Like, last month we were trying to do the worst <laughs> movies we could find. So like so, lowest so, rated movies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, like it's just stuff like that. If you, it's, it's. I hate saying it, but it's essentially it's kind of a comparison. It's just a horror version, sort of, of like how did this get made? <laughs> Uh, but you can find us. We're on pretty much any podcast platform you have. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at I Hope You Suffer and Instagram at I Hope You Suffer Podcast. Those, I think we're only, yeah, we're only on those two things. And then just whatever, Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, all that stuff. We're on all of it. Well, awesome. Nathan and Katie, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Yeah, thank thanks. you. Hi, my name is Ryota Masuko. I own a small record shop based in Japan. I've been listening to a lot of folk, jazz, and ethnic music of the world, and now I arrive to your music. I was the first time listening to your very early cassette tape keyboard fantasies. It was a very emotional experience for me. Do you have stock copy of keyboard fantasies? I would like to buy this if you have. That's it. That's it. And now I'm joined by Alexander Burke, who is joining me to talk about two films that we watched through Hot Docs that involve music. Alex, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to me. Thanks for having me. All right. So we watched two interesting movies. Uh, the first one, Keyboard Fantasies, the Beverly Glenn Copeland story, which was directed by Posey Dixon. I'll give a brief plot description. Uh, as a sci-fi obsessed woman living in near isolation, Beverly Glenn Copeland wrote and self-released Keyboard Fantasies in Huntsville, Ontario back in 1986. Recorded in Atari-powered home studio, the cassette featured seven tracks of curious folk electronica hybrid, a sound realized far before its time. Three decades on, the musician, now Glenn Copeland, began to receive emails from people across the world thanking him for the music they'd recently discovered, capturing five decades of relentless musical output and shifting manifestations of gender and sexual identity set against a backdrop of profound social change. The film celebrates the unpredictable rhythms of life. Uh, this movie was really interesting because I had no concept of who Glenn Copeland was, Beverly Glenn Copeland, uh, despite the fact that I'm Canadian and uh, he has the backing of Caribou, otherwise known as Dan Snaith, who is a special thanks of this movie. But this movie, this music was really interesting. Did you like the the music apart from the film? Yeah, the music was really interesting. I mean, I'm not that much of a fan of the of kind of new agey stuff, but melodically speaking, it, it really appealed to me. It was interesting. I was listening to it, and and obviously I'm not going to make like a one-to-one comparison. And, and Caribou being thanked, I can definitely sort of see where he sort of has a similar idea about music. But stuff like uh, Tycho, Boards of Canada, Calm Trues, Jean-Michel Blaze, like there's so many different music that kind of have that like ambient electronica sort of vibe where it's like more low-key 
relaxation music that I'm definitely seeing popular now. It's crazy that this stuff was being made 30 over 30 years ago. And now is sort of like, uh, genre de jour sort of thing where it's like really interesting to, to see more people being making that kind of music. Yeah. It's like, it's almost, it's kind of like a proto vaporwave. Do you remember that thing back in like the late 2000s? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, that had a more, definitely had a bit more of a, happier feel i would say uh whereas this seemed a little bit more melancholy but i can definitely sort of see where those two genres overlap a little bit yeah melancholy is a good word Mm -hmm. it's a little bit brighter than just being gloomy but there is sort of an uh, just a little bit of an underlying darkness to it Mm -hmm. and uh it, it was also interesting to sort of see the this sort of journey that this artist has gone on uh we learn that Beverly was raised in this sort of, you know, self-contained group of Quakers, and she didn't really understand the world of what it was like to be a black person in the, you know, in the in the fifties, sixties, and seventies until she was able to go to university and get out of her hometown, and then sort of experience the world as, unfortunately, the rest of a lot of people of color are experiencing, which I, I found really interesting. Because it seems so timely watching this right now and understanding where maybe there's some parallels there, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think most importantly, there's the fact that even in, in, even in her 70s, she was able to sort of find this audience and build this community around her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that was interesting. And, and especially since uh, she eventually came out as transgendered and now goes by Glenn um, and he has basically found this sort of support group where it's interesting, you know, if you're, if you're gay or, or, or transgender or things like that in today's day and age, for the most part, it's not as big of a deal. You know, I, I don't know your age. I'm, I'm 30 years old. I've long been surrounded by people of, of different sexualities and, and general orientations and things like that. And so it's nothing to me. And so there's a great little scene later on in the film where it looks like it's some sort of support group and all the people are probably in their twenties or younger. And, and Glenn is the oldest person who's 74 at the time of filming and just sort of the life that he must've experienced. And you sort of think back of what that sort of experience was like. And it, it's, it's pretty haunting to sort of imagine I'm in, I'm actually turning 35 in a few weeks. So, and I, I'm not exactly sheltered, but I never really, but I haven't had really as much experience around, um, like people are other uh, sexual orientations or really even other races. So yeah, I'm it's obviously I'm coming from a pretty different place. That's interesting to hear that. Um, I also kind of liked in this movie how it's sort of, you know, we'll talk about a little bit with the next movie as well. Um, at times it had a bit of a music video feel to it where I I think they were trying to say that they were archival footage where it was like home, home movie footage. And I think some of it was, whether it was photographs and things like that. But for the most part, it yeah. kind of seemed like they were reenactments. Did you get that feel as well where you weren't really sure if it was actual home movie footage or if it was reenactments? Well, I remember seeing in the credits that at least one of the scenes was a direct reenactment. It was the, um, it was the one that I think was set in her parents' house. 
where where an actor was playing her father playing the piano. Mm-hmm. That was one that sort of stuck out for me as well because it was very clearly you know only the back of him and you don't see his face. Yeah, I think there was I think there was a good I think there was a good amount of just like uh, stock footage just uh, going along the streets. Yeah, yeah, and, and that was something that I, I'm from Toronto, so I really appreciate that, and and I don't really know how other people would be able to to recognize it or, or you know view it as. But seeing Toronto back in the '60s, this is a city that's changed so much that you know the architecture is still there, but for the most part, uh, the the area that she was talking about, Yorkville, which is was our like folk scene. So in San Francisco, it would have been like the the Hate Ashbury neighborhood as well uh or greenwich village in new york that sort of stuff where it's like coffee houses and, and people sitting around with their guitars so it's really cool to see that old footage because now yorkville is this like super upscale neighborhood of like high-end fashion designers uh yeah. so sort of, sort of similar of like rodeo drive if you're in los angeles that sort of stuff or soho in new york and so it's this crazy mix of like going back in time where it was just a completely different atmosphere. And it was really cool to see that. Uh, As someone who's not Canadian, were you able to kind of identify any sort of Canadiana to this movie? To be honest, it didn't really feel very Canadian. I mean, if it didn't, I think if it didn't explicitly say that it was set in Toronto, it could have passed for like, it could pass for somewhere in New England. Like um, I actually live near Cambridge. So it did sort of, I definitely got that kind of feeling, even though it's a completely different country, completely different city. Interesting. That's that's good to hear that. These notes are made from our intestines. These colors from our bloodlines. Our dance steps are just our tears in portable form. And because Vicious Days have gone platinum, made all our songs go ruby. We extra with the red to set the rainbow off after the storm. That ain't gonna be enough to describe this to a friend. Our eyes just in time to witness a chorus of metamorphosis. Woe to those trying to stop these killer African bees from making honey. Our babies with their smiles are our actual masterpieces. We just a franchise of the very beginning. When it was said, let there be light. Lovers that can't help ourselves. Creators, creating and creating. Amen. Now, we watched a second movie, which was called Dark City Beneath the Beat, which was directed by T.T. the Artist. And the plot is, uh, Dark City Beneath the Beat is an audiovisual experience that defines the soundscape of Baltimore City. Inspired by an all-original Baltimore club music soundtrack, the film spotlights local club artists, DJs, dancers, producers, and Baltimore's budding creative community as they are realizing their life dreams. From the city's social climate to its creative LGBTQ community, Dark City Beneath the Beat showcases Baltimore club music as a positive subculture in a city overshadowed by trauma, drugs, and violence. This movie was really interesting for me because it was just brimming with performances where I talked about in the last movie how parts of it kind of seemed like it was music video-like. About half this movie was basically a music video. Uh, Oh, at least half. Yeah, and so it was really interesting. And that was something I sort of appreciated because it wasn't so much the talking head sort of style documentary where you get people just sort of explaining things and photos get put up or whatnot and people are walking around their town. It was like they were just going to show it to you instead. Were there any performances yeah. that sort of stood out for you as ones that you enjoyed? I was really struck by the um, 
the one thing that we kind of that uh, highlighted the Baltimore club dance with like the uh, was it the all yellow scene? Yeah, and some of the moves sound a little bit familiar, like the uh, the SpongeBob, the Cherry Hill, <laughs> but I never really had any context behind it. But and I mean, it was it was so full of life. And I think I think that's the thing for me. I I don't know if I've like directly listened to this music, but like some of it sounded familiar. And being able to just see the energy that sort of came through it, it reminded me a bit of like. Um, sort of like the the late 80s, early 90s B-boy, B-girl movement where it wasn't just about the music. It was, you know, the break dancing as well. It was about the graffiti art as well. It was about mm-hmm. how you can encompass the entire community of different artists, and that's what the genre is. It's not just the music. Right. I mean, and this is just one city's culture. I mean, it could be a totally different thing um, up in D.C., out in uh, up in Detroit, out in New York. Yeah, but the one thing that, that I don't want to say it bothered me, but the one thing that really struck me was it didn't have a lot, there was this lack of cohesion to it. Like it kept jumping around from scene to scene with them um, and from plot line to plot line. Yeah, I, I agree with that too. I, I enjoyed it immensely, but I felt at times that I had, I was forgetting who was talking and what their relationship to the, the movie was. And, uh, I also feel like there's sometimes just a lack of information. And I I understand that it was more of show don't tell, but I still would have preferred a bit more of a history of how did the genre start and, and things like that, or maybe how did it evolve into what it is today? I was also really looking for more of a history. I mean, not really knowing any, knowing anything about it. So it felt very insidery. Like it was a Baltimore club movie made for the Baltimore club scene. Mm, that's an interesting way of putting it. And yeah, I, I, I kind of feel similarly where it was meant to celebrate the community, but it felt a little insular at times, uh, yeah. which I don't know if that was its intention or not, but I, I totally get where you maybe feel that way because I, I'm on that same spectrum too mm-hmm. yeah and going back to what you were saying earlier about um about the have the uh beverly glenn jackson movie kind of uh, beverly, beverly glenn copeland sorry was sort of a reflection of the times uh dark uh yeah dark city was much more of that for me yeah yeah absolutely you know there there's a sequence in this where uh, the the murder of Freddie Gray is reinterpreted as animation and yeah. everything that's going on with all the protests about police brutality and things like that, you can't help but link these two together right now. Yeah. But at the same time, it's... I don't know if this is the right word, but it's a very comforting movie. Like, in spite of all this tragedy, in spite of all this horrendous action, you can see that life still goes on. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's a very succinct way of putting it because because I agree. This is this is a community. You know what I my knowledge of Baltimore is unfortunately for better or for worse based on watching The Wire, and so you know you you see the crime and the drugs and yeah and all that. Listen, sort it's of better stuff. than mine. <laughs> yeah, my my knowledge of Baltimore is basically just is basically just the seafront. Mm, interesting. Like the area around the museum. Okay. And that's from uh, that's from a trip I took that I, when I when I was in high school, like almost twenty years ago. I think that like a lot of it, 
you know, you, you know the, the food scene in Baltimore because they're so uh, seafood heavy and things like that, and that sort of reflects the culture, and they're close to D.C., mm-hmm. so it's that sort of suburb of Washington, D.C., and, and things like that, where that sort of Baltimore's identity to the outside world, it's nice to know that on the inside they have their own thing going on, and despite the hardships that these people might be facing or the trauma that people might have experienced, that they have a way to express themselves in a creative and healthy outlet that pushes them forward beyond what you or I or anyone else might assume Baltimore or people living in Baltimore to be. It was really like heart, heart, heart lifting. Is that a word? Uplifting. We'll call it that. Uplifting. Even better. In spite of everything, I just feel it's a very positive movie. And right now I think we need, I think we need that kind of movie a lot right now. I, I agree. I think that's a good way of saying it too. Uh, it's one of the things where like, I was watching it. I had it on my laptop. I had my headphones on because I didn't want to bother my wife while she was working during the day. And like, I couldn't help but like kind of groove on my couch a little bit. I'd be like, oh, man, I could totally – like it's weird. We're stuck in quarantine right now, and I'm not someone that normally goes out to, to clubs or goes out dancing and things like that. But I'm watching this movie. I'm like, man, right now I'd love to go to a club and just like friggin' dance and drink and be around friends and other people. And maybe that's just the quarantine talking, but it definitely mm-hmm. made me feel really happy watching it. I mean, it didn't really make me dance, but I did start making a, I actually did start making some beats like for the first time to first time in a little while. Oh, interesting. You're a musician too. No, I'm, I mean, I play piano and like a sort of screw around a garage band, but that's, that's the extent of it. That's pretty cool. And what sort of, is it stuff that was inspired by the movie or just like your own style and the movie just kind of like brought these ideas to you? Yeah, the movie really just brought it out. Back to the movie, I I kind of appreciated how much like genres like disco, which started out in black and in queer spaces, this Baltimore club scene is basically the exact same. For the first half to three quarters, it seemed to just sort of be focusing on the black community. And then I was I was curious. I was like, this this music really sounds like something you'd see in a here in a gay club. Um, mm-hmm. And then they sort of brought in that element where where the queer community was also involved in it as well, and how they bring so much color and life to it. I really appreciate that they're kind of bringing it all full circle and just sort of you know bringing back once again that basically all dance music sort of comes from these places where people who have experienced hardships are looking for an escape. It doesn't matter what music, even if you look at something like punk, where it's just, you know, people being angry about the establishment and wanting to let out energy, it sort of is the exact same sort of instances of how these music genres are created. It really is a music for the people. Yeah. Uh, so that was really awesome that we were able to, to watch these two movies. Uh, I'm glad I sent you a couple, uh, different options of, of screeners that I had. I'm glad you picked these two because I really enjoyed both of them. Do you have any final thoughts on, on either of these documentaries? I don't think I do. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, well, Alex, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to talk to me. Thanks again for having me. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I 
also had the fortune to watch a movie on my own, In Your Eyes, I See My Country, directed by Kamal Hacker. And the plot description is, Neda Al-Kayam and Amit Cohen live in Jerusalem. Together, they create a band where they revisit and reshape their common Judo-Moroccan musical heritage. In life, as on stage, they grapple with this identity duality and attempt to heal the wounds of exile carried by their parents. In Your Eyes, I See My Country portrays their journey to Morocco. From one musical encounter to another, they reshape their perception of who they are and what to become, along with aspirations to consolidate bridges with the homeland of their ancestors. This was a great movie that focused a lot on music being this healing tool to uh, be able to bring together people of different backgrounds, whether it's uh, their ethnicity, their religion, the country that they're from, or anything else. Of course, with a music documentary of this subject matter, the thing that works the best is the musical performances. There is just so much going on, the life and passion you see when the musicians are on stage and the interaction that they have with the audience is something that I'm really envious. And during this quarantine, I really wish I was able to go to a live concert and be able to feel that energy myself. But this movie also has a lot more saying on. You know, right from the very beginning, uh, we hear from Netta, who says the idea of a Jewish woman who sings in Arabic is already uh, an intensely political act, and that she's crossing these boundaries. And she tells the story about how, despite the fact that she, her, her, her native tongue is Hebrew, growing up in, in Israel, uh, she learned uh, she learned Arabic and had to speak it in private and in silence and not let other people know because of the 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 judgment that she might face from her peers, uh, whether, you know, from her, her growing up or just the community as a whole. And that's something that's, that's really tough and frustrating to listen to. But, uh, there really is a, a beauty in this music. It's basically a, a communal ritual and it's as much as a prayer as it is about passing the stories down from generation to generation. Uh, it's very interesting. They, this couple, they, they travel to Morocco and they talk about how their family is from there originally and they're trying to retrace their past as far as their hometowns and they bring their past, their, their great grandparents, not passports, but documents, birth certificates, census results, things like that to be able to kind of, uh, show what their background is and see if they can find more information from it. Netta is in the process of, uh, applying for a Moroccan passport as well, so that way she'd have dual citizenship. And they're able to visit these hometowns of their ancestors and find the elders of the community and ask them if they remember, you know, from 50, 60 years ago, were their families with this last name? Did you know them? What were they like? Where was their house? Where are their other family members buried? Things like that. So it's really beautiful going on there. Uh, and you can't help but watch this and, and just see how the issues that they're facing over there in the Middle East is so much going on over here in, in North America and other parts of the world as well. She's talking about this idea of borders and walls and, and how superfluous they are and keeping people apart and just tearing people apart. And the idea that how can you hate someone when you go in their home and you see them face to face and you play music together and you sing together? It's the same idea of how can you hate someone once you've eaten a meal that they've cooked for you? Things like that where you just wonder where this disconnect is. Uh, but at the same time, Netta also sort of 
acknowledges her own internal racism and, and prejudice that she has. You know, she's talking about how growing up in Jerusalem, she was told that Arabic people are bad and she should be scared of them. And, and that was so ingrained in all the children. And then when she finally goes over to Morocco and she's in the market and both, she's feeling this duality of, of feeling at home with her people, with her ancestors but at the same time is still unsure of them and feels unsafe despite the fact that there's no reason to actually feel unsafe and and the fact that she's able to acknowledge that is what makes her such a strong person and will make her be able to get over that and understand where that came from and not pass that on to future generations because it's that fear of the unknown of why people keep passing down these sort of prevalent thoughts that is the issue with society as a whole she even mentioned at one point that uh, if there was no music, there would only be war, which is a is a such a heady comment. You think about it, and, and it just sort of blows your mind that you know if there's if there wasn't these simple pleasures in communication and dialogue between these different cultures, whether it takes the the place of of music or food or art or things like that, then you just constantly be fighting. But instead. You have this ability to come together and bond over that, and that's a really powerful one. This is this is a really interesting movie, and uh, and I do hope it sort of gets a bit wider attention. I haven't really seen it any other list as far as important films to check out playing at Hot Docs, but it's it's one that I think is is really interesting, and I, and I hope it finds an audience. I want to thank Hot Docs for providing me with the screener links to the movies talked about on today's show. Please check out hotdocs.ca for more information about what is still screening and information on the movies talked about and much more. When the quarantine is over, please support local cinemas like Hot Docs, Ted Rogers Cinema, and catch a flick in person. Thank you to Nathan and Katie from the I Hope You Suffer podcast for joining the show. Make sure you give them a follow and listen to their podcast. And thank you to Alex Burke for coming on as well. Lastly, I'd like to share some feedback I've received from our last episode, counting down the top 10 A24 films. Some comments I got included one from Reddit user IronTusk93 who said, Just gave this a listen and I totally agree with everything you said about The Last Black Man San Francisco. It's a really beautiful film in so many ways. As of right now, I think my favorite A24 is Hereditary, but I'd say it's in my top 5. It's hard to settle on a top solid 5 though since there are so many great ones. Uncut Gems is also definitely up there. Well, I'm glad you are a fan of Last Black Man San Francisco as well. I also got an email from Thomas Hodgkins who said, I just listened to both of your A24 podcast episodes and I loved it. I learned a lot about the history of the company and loved hearing your favorites. My favorite A24 film and one of my all-time favorite movies is The Florida Project. And I was really surprised that out of the top 20 movies that were picked, it wasn't included. Lady Bird and Hereditary round out my top three A24 films. I think both films are future classics. I have seen all the films that were picked except The Last Black Man in San Francisco, so I'll definitely be checking that one out. Well, Thomas, I'm so happy that you wrote in, um, and, and thank you for sharing those those thoughts that you had. And I really hope you, you enjoy Last Black Man as much as Iron Tusk 93 also does too. Uh, as far as ones that we missed, The Florida Project, it was just there. I know Royce and I had a few movies that we felt guilty leaving off we we both probably could have made top 20 lists that had no overlap as well there are just so many great a24 films the florida project would probably be the number one movie that didn't make my cut i'm pretty sure it was like just outside my top 10 
ContraZoom is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. I'd like to thank Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. Follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. Send any feedback you have to ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. And what sort of shows would you like to hear in the future? Uh, let me know if you have any idea suggestions. I'd love to, uh, to do something to please you. It would also be a great help if you would rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts as it will help us grow and find new listeners. Thank you for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.